Interact helps Canadians access their funds their way. Products like Interact Debit and Interact eTransfer have made money mobile, taking it from the confines of traditional banking and ushering it into the digital age. As consumers adapt to new technology, so does Interact. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca. We're at Women Deliver. We're in Vancouver here. What are you going to do with your power? We're part of a movement that's existed long before any of us got here. That all women and girls matter around this country. 8,000 of the world's women here from all walks of life. It's nice to see more Indigenous women participate and have their voices at these, at these events and in these conversations. My name is Mariam Monsef. I am the Member of Parliament for Peterborough-Kawartha and Canada's Minister for Women and Gender Equality and International Development. It's great to see you. Thank um, you. On, on Sunday, your, your ministry announced a major investment, congratulations, $300 million, uh, to develop a new platform that would provide support and sort of financial aid to, to groups working to prioritize women's rights around around the world. Um, can you give me more details about the, the the plan and the platform, I should say, and who the partners are and, and how that came about? Thanks, Sarah. On Sunday, Canada became the number one investor in women's organizations here at home and around the world. And we did that by introducing a $330 million envelope, $300 million to support the work that we do globally, to support women's organizations, grassroots, on the ground, leading the change, advocating for change, protecting progress, and $30 million for organizations here in Canada. These are organizations uh, that are, you know, 191 community foundations across the country, the Canadian Women's Foundation and Grand Challenges Canada. We listen to what the women's sector, those advocating for women's rights at home and around the world said, and they all said the same thing. We know the solutions. We know the shortcuts. We are able to maximize the impact of every single dollar. We're doing a lot of good work on shoestring budgets. If you give us predictability and sustainability, we can actually look towards saving and transforming lives instead of writing a million grant applications that we may not succeed in applying to. So. We listened, we put forward that instrument, um, and the beauty of it is it's a self-sustaining model, and it's in the hands of really smart people who, you know, from, you know, these are the world's, Canada's best feminists, these are Canada's best philanthropists, Canada's best investors who understand the link between gender equality and economic growth. And they're going to grow these dollars from 300 plus million dollars mm -hmm. into 1 billion over the next decade or so. They've already raised an extra 100 million dollars. So we're just getting started. And so this is the Equality Fund, right? Correct. And, and so is this a, a new, I was trying to figure this out, a new organization, right? The new platform, if you will. Correct, it's a new platform. Canada's never had an instrument like this, a platform that brings together NGOs, private sector, philanthropists, and the government. Traditionally, this work has been done in silos. And we had philanthropists, people with money who care about things. We had women's organizations with the knowledge of what works coming to us and say, Canada, you need a fund 
by feminists, for feminists, to get the best results possible because it can't just be up to NGOs and nonprofits. It can't be just up to governments. And this platform, the first of its kind for Canada, creates an opportunity for everyone to come on board and row in the same direction, achieve gender equality, tap into the $150 billion gender economy at home and the $12 trillion gender economy around the world. I think that's an interesting point too, that we that we uh, remember that gender equality is so closely, as you said, linked to economic development and, and ec economic growth. Because it is. I mean, around the world, we see that if we, we put our money behind women, countries grow and they, and they better themselves. In Canada, we have... Uh, and an aging workforce and that's good it's it's important that we live longer that we contribute to our families and communities longer but we have shortages in our labor force now in Canada we're seeing what the rest of the world is seeing which is the economies that thrive are the ones that are able to come up with the best ideas the quickest and those innovative economies are the ones that ensure that every single drop of talent is in the room making decisions coming up with ideas so in Canada, you know, if you think about a sector that I care about a lot, uh, manufacturing, uh, it was thriving in Peterborough, you know, a century ago, and now we're making a huge comeback. In this sector, right now, there are over 40,000 jobs that are vacant. These are good middle-class jobs that allow the companies to stay competitive, to respond to orders, and to stay invested in Canada. But with 40,000 vacancies, if you look at the 28% that women are in that workforce, the math doesn't add up. So what if we increase the participation of women? What if we added 100,000 women over the next five years to manufacturing? Would we do better as a country? We will. So the same argument that, that we see in our own homes, when my mom had more money as a single mom in her pockets, she bought things for her three daughters. And she spent that money in the community. And so those dollars had a huge impact. The same argument that we make for our families, the women in our families having more money, the women in Canada having more money, we can make it to communities around the world. And let's face it, when women are able to earn uh, for their families, they are better respected. Suddenly, even those cultures and communities that don't value the contributions of women, see how loving her up, respecting her, investing in her is good for everybody and that it's a rising tide. For you personally, what does this mean? What does this announcement, what does this week meant uh, for you and especially being at, at Women Deliver here in Vancouver. Uh, my number one priority since Prime Minister Trudeau gave me the responsibility to advocate for women in Canada has been the sustainability of the movement that brought us to this moment in time and those organizations on the ground doing the hard work, right? We're part of a movement that's existed long before any of us got here. This is the movement that rose and marched in the streets when the price of bread was too high in the 1700s in France. This is the movement that rose and said, we demand the right to vote. This is the movement that continues to advocate in, in the ways that Idle No More did. This is the movement that led the women of Afghanistan in my lifetime to start an underground schooling system so that their daughters could get the education that the Taliban didn't want them to have. So for me to see, you know, under the incredibly courageous leadership of Prime Minister Trudeau, us 
in Canada giving respect to these movements, to these organizations, telling them that we see them, that we hear them, that we value them, that we want them to succeed, and give them the investment and the vote of confidence they need to keep doing what they're doing. You know, I'm a daughter of the movement, and it's 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 a way to give back uh, and to see you know eight thousand of the world's women here from all walks of life with their own challenges you know each of these women carry a certain painful chapter of the movement's history and each of them deal with some really horrendous things but also do the work because if they don't do it then who will if they don't do it who else could see the value in supporting the nine-year-old girl who without our support would be raped by her uncle in a certain part of the world these are women who are part of that movement and that we all have days when we feel defeated or discouraged but what this opportunity and um, that my brilliant team has convened allows us all is a reminder that we are part of a movement that we are not alone mm -hmm. and that there are women rising in every corner of the world and we will not be pushed back. We will not lose hard-won gains. We can only move forward and we have each other to lean on. Thank you for joining us. Jennifer Flanagan, CEO of Actua. You were tweeting that uh, you know there's over a hundred different people, mm -hmm. women 165 from different countries. 165 yeah. countries represented here. What does it mean to have that many different voices and perspectives mm -hmm. in a room? So I think that like that's definitely the first impression that came to me in participating in the conference was that room yesterday full of 8,000 women from all over the world. And the, the, the conference content is like it's, it's massively broad in terms of the topics yes. that it's covering. So things that... Um, you might not have encountered in your work. I mean, that's what I love about it right. because obviously we work in the space of science and technology and right. girls and skills. And um, so to come and actually hear how many linkages there are with things like healthcare yes. and the environment and other topics that are having broad, big impacts on women is it's amazing. And I think yes. there's also a tendency to say in Canada, um, you know, we're such an advanced and developed mm -hmm. country. It's all good. We can focus on other other countries. And I think that, that you just made an excellent point, and that is something that has continued to, um, that I've continued to think about as I sit in the sessions, and that is that we have a lot of great things right. happening in Canada, and certainly this government has, um, you know, kicked it out of the park with the right. investments that, that they've announced yesterday and today, the, the Equality Fund and yes. the funding announced by uh, Prime Minister Trudeau this morning for, for women's health. Um, but we have to, and that is just like at the front of my mind right now, is we have to remember that there are tens of thousands of girls in this country that things are not rosy for. Right. So that, whether that is that they are dealing with food security issues, they are dealing with violence in the home or outside the home, they are not getting... They have access to education, but access is a really tricky word, right? So they might be able to, you know, no one's preventing them necessarily from going to school, but that doesn't mean they have the support at home or the food security to go to school or this, you know, what they need to, to meet those basics. So there's a lot of girls in Canada who are still struggling, and we need to remember that when we're sitting at these conferences thinking like, wow, we do obviously have it pretty good, but, but. there's a lot of girls and women in this country that are still 
um, needing us to amplify their issues and amplify their voices. We've also had conversations about sort of where where young girls drop off in terms yes. of interests. Right. And um, do, you, do you, are you hopeful that that too is changing? I think it. I think there are definite. Um, the data shows that there are definite improvements. So there are more girls and women entering science and technology fields in university, for example. You know, our partner at the University of Toronto um, this year are going to most likely surpass 45% women in their undergraduate engineering program. That's remarkable, and that's a lot of hard work over many, many years by a lot of different players. Yeah. Um, but yes, I'm optimistic that that is changing. I think the confidence drop that girls experience between grade five, so the data shows between grade five and grade, uh, sorry, grade six and grade 10 is dramatic, a dramatic confidence uh, drop. So something like, you know, 40% of girls report high level of self-confidence in grade six, that goes down to 13% in grade, um, in grade 10. So there's a lot at play there. There's mm. a whole bunch of things going on that are outside the science and technology realm. But I think ha- them having technology skills is going to give them act technology skills in a responsible way so yes safe safe online interactions for example for boys and for girls um, that's going to give them more access to good information that's going to give them more access to networks that will support and bolster their ideas you know so I think we can take there's a lot of talk about the negative online interactions that especially teenage girls are having and I think that is something we can turn on its head and sort of use that as a as a chance to bolster their skills but also increase the positive interactions that they're or the positive mechanisms that they're using technology to advance things thank you for bringing that perspective and joining us on the podcast my pleasure thanks for having me dr Gigi osler president of the canadian medical association it's great to see you first of all i want to ask you about your own story because i know i was reading that uh, before you became the president of the canadian medical association uh, when someone asked you, it's like in politics, right? You've got to ask someone a few times and there's always that, uh, I don't know if I'm the right person who would vote for me. Tell me a bit about those initial days and what was going through your head. I was at a meeting with a colleague and we were talking about the upcoming annual CMA meeting, which was going to be held in Winnipeg in August 2018. And that's when the Canadian Medical Association president would come from Manitoba. And so we were talking about who was thinking of running, and my colleague turned to me and said, Gigi, why don't you run? You should run. I think you would be a fantastic president because of this, this, and that. And my initial reaction was, me? Why me? Why would anybody vote for me? Part of that was imposter syndrome, thinking that I wasn't qualified enough. Part of that was not realizing that I was eligible to run for the position simply by being a CMA member. And I remember thinking about it all night and it terrified me and excited me at the same time. And if you think about it, there aren't a lot of opportunities that come to you in life that both terrify you and excite you. No. Thought about it all night, couldn't sleep, and by the next morning, knew I wanted to do it. And I tell this story because you hear from so many young women, women and girls that um, they often don't feel like they're qualified, like they're imposters. There's a 
famous internal study from Hewlett-Packard that looked at who applied for different positions. And what they found was that women often wouldn't apply for a position unless they thought they met 100% of the criteria. So part of my having this discussion with men, with women, because it's not just women who feel like they're imposters, uh, is that we have to reframe our thinking a lot of the times and have to recognize our experience, our expertise, and our accomplishments to know when we are good enough. We were talking about power and, and the conversations around power here. What are you taking all in from this? It's interesting. And, and a lot of my conversations around uh, diversity, equity, inclusion are now talking about power. And we've heard that in several of the sessions in every plenary. We have heard about how the work of diversity and equity and inclusion means a fundamental shift in power. And in each session, a lot of the speakers are being asked, what are you going to do with your power? We all have a voice, we all have agency. And depending on where you are in your career, all of us have power and influence. And I find that inspiring. And it it sounds, to me, it's a call to action for everybody here and some of the speakers on the panel have been incredibly inspiring from an 18 year old young journalist from the University of Zambia yesterday sharing the stage with the Prime Minister of Canada. Each of them were asked the same question. What are you going to do with your power? Uh, Because to achieve equity and diversion inclusion really does mean a shifting of power, a sharing of power. And I think it needs to be, it's not that we want to exclude people, no, but we want to include everybody. Right. And, and that's the discussion, and I think that's the path forward that we all need to be sharing together. We're talking about the environments that we're in that were at one point crafted by men and even the medical system, right? That is, going back to, to that, I mean, that was developed by men. So you as the president of the Canadian Medical Association, I mean, how are you um, trying to infuse that, your, your womanhood into that position? And do you hear from medical students and um, residents saying, oh, I'm so glad you're in that position. I can see myself now. There is an English historian uh, named Professor Mary Beard. And I love this quote. And she states that you cannot easily fit women into a structure that is coded as male. You have to change the structure. Now, take out women, take out male. Put in trans and cis. Put in indigenous and non-indigenous. Put in disabled and abled. And you can see how we have, if we're going to look at our healthcare system, our medical system, our medical school training, residency training, systems and structures that were built in a different era by men for men. And we are trying to fit all of these different groups into these structures. And we're making progress and we're making headway. 
But I think fundamentally, we do need to examine our systems and structures to see how our systems and structures can better adapt and shift and change to fit all of us in there. Uh, and so, yes, I have had medical students, young residents, men and women, and physicians come to say, thank you for talking about this. Uh, some have said, I've never seen someone in a leadership position that looks like me. Um, this has inspired me and I uh, want to continue my journey as a phys physician leader. Uh, and, and that's what gives me a lot of hope yeah. for the future. And that what is what gives me a lot of hope for change uh, in our systems and our structures. Because um, in particular, when I look at some, and when you look at um, Indigenous health, how much work we need to do to change the systems and structures to improve the health of Canada's Indigenous people. And, and I, we have to do it. Thank you, Dr. Rosser. Thank you. My name is Anna Thomas, and I am the president of the BC Native Women's Association. I'm Nikki and I'm from Kamloops Sequetmik, which is a part of the Sequetmik Nation. And I was formerly, I held some national youth positions for Native Women's Association in Canada and also BC Native Women's Association in Canada. And now I'm a student. Now you're done. That's a fantastic. Yeah. I'm really happy to have you uh, both with me. What have you gathered thus far? We're on day two now. Uh, what are the, some of the key main messages you're taking away? from it and wanting to bring to it too. That all women and girls matter around this country. Um, it's important that our voices are amplified and we um, stick together and work together. That unity is really important. So the key message that I'm taking from here is that it's it was beautiful to see Indigenous culture and people and women celebrated and it's it's nice to have that at it a global level so I think more I think more of that needs to be echoed across and um, it's nice to see more indigenous women participate and have their voices at these at these mm -hmm. events and in these conversations and at the table so that's what I'm taking away from here being here it's, it's nice to see that because I've attended many international events and haven't seen enough of Indigenous women voices included in global conversation. The theme of the conference here is power, change, and, and progress. What does that theme look like for Indigenous peoples? I think in regards to power is honoring, um, honoring our young women and our children and our Indigenous, our, our, our aunties, our grandmas. Um, it's, it's taking back that power and standing strong in your spirit and owning who you are and us um, uplifting each other and supporting each other and working together because um, I honestly don't feel we do that enough and we need mm -hmm. to, if we, if we want healing, we need to heal as a community. As a community. Yeah. The, the, we, we know that the National uh, Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women was tabled this week. I want to know from, from you both, um, the report that's a first step. What would you like to see come after this? I think right off the hop is media. Um, we were at a engagement session and it was brought forward that how this report was actually leaked out to the media on Friday and it was very disrespectful to the families and, and to our murdered and missing Indigenous women 
and girls that, you know, they didn't even have time to comprehend before the media had already pounced on it and put out these statements. So I think there needs to be call out to media. That was the whole point of this report is that our lives are always up for is always up for debate and media platform media gives that plat, that platform to whether or not to value indigenous women's life or are they worthy. So I definitely agree right off the hop media really needs to take a step back and be patient and um, uh, respectful and um, create a safe space for our stories and um, our truth to be heard. Another thing is, like you said, it's the beginning. And mm -hmm. that's what I was saying too. Uh, you know, the decades and generations of Indigenous women have been, you know, fighting for this inquiry. And now it came to reality. And now we have that final report, something that generations of women have been fighting for who never lived to see that report. And so I always, I've been telling my people around me that the report is not the end, it's the beginning of the end. Well, I want to thank you both for your time. It was great to have you on. Great. Thank Construction. you. Thank you. My name is Loxman Belwasi. I work uh, with Meninges Global Alliance as the network's manager. So Meninges Alliance is a global network with over 700 member organizations across uh, six regions and 70 countries who, ha who have come together to have a conversation around how do we constructively engage boys and men in the struggle for women's rights and gender equality. Right. Okay. And so, and how do you do that? What are so, some of the ways you've, you've approached mm -hmm, it? Mm -hmm. The, some of the approaches we do is we uh, first and foremost put at the center dismantling patriarchy as the vision. And in order to do that, we talk about what we call men and masculinities lens, which is to do with how can we relate gender to, to help them understand that men are gender beings as well. And then clarify on how men and boys should take on the responsibility to dismantle patriarchy so that we can advance women's rights and gender justice. And how that engagement should look like and what, is, what, what do we mean when we say engaging boys and men and for what. So we try to clarify that is that engagement for boys and men is to dismantle patriarchy and power imbalances and in advancing women's empowerment, rights and equality in a way where we complement with this voice of how, how can men and boys be in the struggle itself together with women's rights sector, with LGBTIQ sector, with youth and other social justice movements. That's fantastic. What would be an example of, of something you're doing with men on the ground? Right. So, you know, based on my own experiences with working with boys and men, I come from more of a youth uh, background. So what, what the kind of work we do at the ground level is First, you know, uh, we try to engage with boys and men to, you know, there, is, there will be some sort of either a curriculum or some sort of ideas around how we want to engage with boys and men and on what topics. So based on, you know, either it is on GBV, sexual and gender-based violence, or whether it is on sexual and reproductive health and rights, or is it around unpaid care work, sort of looking at uh, men and caregiving uh, aspect or women peace and security or advancing LGBTIQ so it depends on which particular thematic area but the engagement that we do with boys and men it is to take them through a journey of reflecting on their own power mm. on their own privileges so that they understand where does the dynamics around gender power imbalances comes from so that we can address and mobilize men around addressing the root causes of gender imbalance that is there and while doing that doing in a accountable way yeah. because you know yes we agree that men and boys need to be engaged but 
now we have moved on from the concept of why we need to work yes. with those and men to how exactly are we engaging them right. in the journey. So that's the quest we have and, and we try to clarify how the engagement should look like and putting at the center the feminist informed process hmm. meaning we the content of the core element of the conversation is informed by the feminist agenda itself okay and clarify that what then it means for men and boys to be engaging or aspiring allies in this struggle right. in an accountable manner it's true because i think it's so subtle right for mm -hmm. men they don't sometimes sometimes when i talk to male colleagues or friends peers they won't they'll say no no we're all equal i don't understand what you're talking about mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm. the 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 patriarchy or their power is so um the power imbalance is so subtle for them um how do why do you think it is so hard for men some men mm -hmm. to accept that there is a, a power imbalance mm -hmm. and that there's room at the table for others i think the the struggle is the way men and boys are socialized um, during the socialization what really happens is by virtue of the patriarchal structure we are part of as men and boys or male identified individuals uh, we do have privileges and i think we enjoy that and everyone enjoys being in power <laughs> yeah. right i think we, we we tend to you know forget about the struggle that others who are not probably in the same situation of power or context of power forget the, the struggle that is out there and you start enjoying the power and the, the privilege we get as men and boys right. across the settings. Right. Maybe it from home, maybe it in school, maybe it in the communities or the institutions we are part of or maybe part of the government itself. Hmm. I think that's where the crux lies is how do we then get into men and boys to understand these privileged positions that we hold down the line. One, that is one. And unclarified about wha what is it that we are asking from men? Yeah. Is it asking asking men to sort of give up the power? That's a big That's question. That's a big question. And then um, are we then talking about different forms of power and, and clarifying that becomes yes. a part of a journey? And there is no one fit solution either. We have to contextualize our engagement depending on which settings are we talking uh, about and, and, and in which area or what thematic focus do we have. So to, to dismantle that. Mm. And then the third point is we need to deconstruct that when we talk about gender, it's not only gender is not equal to women. That's true. Yeah, Men and boys absolutely. are gendered. So yes. I think uh, the struggle is also to make feel men and boys that we are gendered beings. Right. And patriarchy actually has a neg negative impact on our socialization the the expectations that are put on to men and boys which we sometimes call as masculine ideologies and how masculinities and the patriarchy impacts ourselves our own well-being and to unpack that requires a bit of time and that that does require yeah. interrogating our own mm -hmm. identities who we are and, and going through the yeah. real transformation and that becomes challenging with men and boys to really yeah. understand uh, and and feel that Tension you know, almost. Uh, tension. It's, it's you know, internal it's conflict. Exactly. And, and it's not an easy process. No. So that's why it takes time. And probably so for some boys and men, it might seem in the challenging in the beginning, but they, once they are into, <laughs> it's a serious business they are in. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. Thank you so much. My name is Sandra Pepra, and I'm the Director for Gender, Women and Democracy from the National Democratic Institute based in Washington, D.C. 
Can you tell me first a little bit about what the um, NDI does? So NDI is a not-for-profit, non-partisan organization focused on supporting democratic consolidation around the world. So we really care that people have voice and agency in the right institutions to make their political choices and their political voice heard. Why is it important specifically for women to get involved in the political system? Well, I think women in particular, um, from our point of view, if women don't have um, their hands on political power, all their other rights, all their other rights are under threat. Uh, and you know, if you don't believe that, just look at what's happening around the world with regards to women's reproductive rights. We're stuck at 24% of women in national parliaments, and frankly, men are signing away our reproductive rights day after day after day. Around the world, I know this is a very broad question, but what are some of the barriers you're seeing for women um, accessing or getting into politics? Some of the key barriers are the same as they've ever been. Uh, it's about, uh, we talked about sort of the maleness of these political processes. Money, huge barrier, as money becomes so um, uh, prevalent in politics. Women don't have a lot. Uh, they don't like to ask for it very much. Uh, and often the political parties don't even share it equally with their women uh, members. So money is a huge barrier. But what's not a barrier, and that's even more important, there are no competence barriers. When women run for office, they get elected in the same proportions as men. When they stay in office, they get re-elected in the same proportion as men. When they are in office, they are as successful as men. So I think um, the issues are that there are barriers, um, certainly, and they are, if you like, long-standing ones. We are increasingly worried about the backlash to women's engagement. There's a lot of violence um, targeting politically active women these days, not only online, but you know, it's the same old, same old violence around uh, women being beaten up or assaulted, threatened, coerced. So all those things are the sorts of issues that we at NDI want to help women overcome. We were doing a, we, we have a new podcast series about, um, it's called No Second Chances, and it's a profiling the rise and fall of Canada's sole 12 female first ministers. We've only had 12 and uh, in history. And there is something interesting, and in, hence the name, No Second Chances. They get elected, and then they don't get re-elected. And it's a, a few political experts we've talked to said, you know, women don't wear well. It's not that women don't wear well. It's just that they are faced with a daily barrage of microaggressions from having their microphones turned off to not being told when meetings are happening uh, to having uh, spurious new um, operating procedures and rules and regulations uh, thrown at them to being criticized, yes, for their dress, for their voice. We were with Helen Clark yesterday, and she said it has ever been thus. So again, this is why we need to really, really focus on changing the culture of politics. And it's only women being there that changes that culture of politics. So it's like a, it's a, like a double whammy, really. It's it a is. catch-22. We need more women to be there in order to force the change. Um, but without women being there, we won't get the change. That's right. Um, you uh, recently, published a report on online um, vitriol uh, for women. Tell, tell me a little bit about, about that. Well, what was really fascinating is that uh, we, we hypothesized that if women are abused in Twitter conversations um, that are about politics, there is what we call a chilling effect. Mm -hmm. um, what we found with the report and the work is that we absolutely proved that there is a, a similar phenomenon that is online violence against politically active women. 
it manifests differently. So we had case studies in three countries um, and we went in and we built the lexicons in the local languages and we did the data analysis of Twitter conversations in the local languages um, and in Bahasa in Indonesia, in Spanish in Colombia. And by the way, Spanish in Colombia is hasn't got the same, uh, all the same nuances as Spanish in Nicaragua, for example, um, and in uh, Swahili and English in Kenya. And it was interesting, sort of some of the quirky things we found out. Um, apparently women in Indonesia have a higher threshold for abuse because when they were being abused online, they didn't fall off as fast as the women in Kenya and Colombia. It's an interesting, interesting. piece. Uh, in Colombia, we learned that if we don't focus on um, the different identities that women have, you miss something. So women from the deaf community say, well, nobody writes about us. They actually film abusive GIFs in sign language and upload them. Who has the time, Sarah? Why would people do this? But that's the level of... Uh, pushback that women face uh, and then in, in Kenya what was really interesting was a lot of the language that you heard on talk radio and in the streets the slang you know the, some of it very pejorative there's a time lag before it appears in Twitter because Twitter is a written language so understanding some of these nuances is really important to then saying okay so how do we a track it how do we deal with it how do we report it to the platform so that they know you've got to be taking atten paying attention to some of this stuff. Well, I am glad you and your colleagues are at the helm of this. Uh, thank you for joining me on this podcast. Thank you, Sarah. So my name is Ramner Goman. I'm currently from Ontario, outside of Toronto, Brampton, and I'm a high school student. And I'm uh, Caroline Riseborough, the president and CEO of Plan International Canada. Plan International is an 80-year-old organization. We work all around the globe on children's rights and particularly equality for girls. But uh, more recently, especially with our focus on gender equality, we recognize there's really no borders when it comes to, to gender inequality. So we also do work here in Canada with um, a number of incredible Canadian youth tackling the barriers that they face when it comes to equality. And how different are those barriers uh, in Canada, what are we seeing as the most difficult barriers to, to equality? I mean, there, there's so many. I mean, it, it can start with, let's say, access to education. It can start with things like uh, similar access to health care even. We know, for instance, that there's something called period poverty here in Canada. Um, and then when you take kind of an intersectional lens and you look at things like gender and age and different backgrounds, uh, perhaps if you have a mental illness, those inequalities start to build up and they see even further barriers. Um, you know, gender inequality is an issue here in Canada. No country in the world is gender equal and we see this in things like the pay gap or the fact that in um, the uh, on the TSX uh, top uh, top companies, the top 60 don't even have one female CEO, and two thirds of those same companies don't even have a women, a woman, one single woman among their high earners. Half of this battle, in my mind too, is getting um, sort of like men involved and and having men join the conversation. How much of a priority do you think that is? We can't just have half the population working on gender equality. If we truly want to make inroads, we have to engage men and boys in the conversation. And um, yet, oftentimes when we think of gender equality, we think, oh, this is a woman's fight. Yes. Um, but we know from research around the globe 
that the, one of the best ways to continue to make inroads in gender equality is for the women and girls engaged in the fight to engage the men and boys right. too and it becomes their um, cause as well and, and um, their fight and yeah. we know that harmful gender norms don't just hurt women but they hurt men and boys as well in fact right. the leading cause of death for men around the globe is harmful gender norms so um, you were t- telling me a little bit about the work you've done um, uh, on this report specifically, the youth-led roadmap for gender equality uh, that I'm holding here in my hands. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that and the process it took to, to create this roadmap? Yeah, for sure. So I had the privilege to hold a dialogue at my local high school, and specifically my target group of youth was racialized males. So these are the boys that I grew up oh, okay. with, and honestly speaking, like I went into... I went into with low expectations because I've never really made the time, like I regret to say I didn't make the time to have these in-depth conversations with these males, with the boys that I grew up with. So when I did go in, I can proudly say that I was absolutely shocked with their responses. They recognized that there were, um, like it was unfair for like girls in sports, like there was, there was like this whole idea around women being treated unequally like mm. within the school and like the lack of female representation mm. in sport in sports and stuff well not really a lack of repre- representation but more of like they're not really as recognized uh, yeah. and yeah. like because of that dialogue um 27 youth all across Canada were able to um come together at a writers conference in Ottawa so this is like over 300 youth all across Canada that were able to come together and like so 27 of us had the privilege to really work and um, talk about these recommendations and implement them. And I think this is where it goes to sort of challenging the power dynamic, right? So and power is being one of our... Yes, and power is the theme of, yes. of, of the Women Deliver Conference this year. Um, but I think it's also ch- challenging sort of the power dynamics at a grassroots level in our own lives, in our family, in our community. And then, yes, of course, you know, government and institutions. But, um, you know, this is why I think uh, this, this roadmap that Plan International worked on was so powerful because we actually brought the voices of youth to the table and um, created a roadmap to achieving gender equality that is built for young people by young people, not for young people by old people. (laughs) So it's, it's, you know, very much the youth who are living the challenge of gender inequality coming to the table with solutions and recommendations for government, for uh, business, and um, for really all of us. Thank you very much to the both of you for coming on the podcast. Thank Thank you for giving us this opportunity. The age of personal check is coming to a close. While tools such as Interact eTransfer have largely taken their place for personal use, many businesses are still reliant on checks. 54% of businesses believe that they are spending too much time on payment processing. What will it take for companies to finally ditch the check? Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca.